Hi, everyone. I'm Charlie Boyd, and welcome to the Jesus on Display podcast. Before we begin today's content, I wanted just to say thanks for supporting us here at Fellowship Greenville with your gifts and generosity. Because of your giving, we get to share resources like this podcast with you to help reach you wherever you are in your life with Jesus. If you'd like to support the ministry of Fellowship Greenville, you can head to fellowshipgreenville.org forward slash give to get started. Thanks so much for your support, and we hope you enjoy today's episode. Now, the stories of Saul, I think, help us as followers of Jesus to see how sin works. We see what you might call the anatomy of sin. For example, first of all, we feel pressure. We feel some kind of pressure bearing down on us. We feel a kind of tyranny of the urgent to decide or to do something that we think is the answer to the problem we're facing, or maybe it's some temptation we face, or maybe it's something that we think will bring something good into our life, but it's out of line with what God tells us to do. And all of a sudden we feel this pressure and we feel pressure from the world and pressure from the the culture and pressure from our family and friends or pressure from the people we work with, pressure from difficult circumstances, all kinds of pressure. And when we feel that pressure and it hangs around, it's unrelieved, what happens is all of a sudden we start reasoning. Second thing is we reason that what God says may not be that important. What God says may not be that important, so we reason that maybe God's way isn't the best way. We tell ourselves that really it's no big deal not to do what God says to do. And, and we, we, we're overcome by pressure. We start to reason that maybe we don't have to do what God wants us to do. And again, it's pressure from our culture, pressure from our wants and desires, pressure from difficult circumstances that gets us reasoning toward what seems right to us. And that starts to bend us out of the shape in which God created us and designed us into conformity with the world. And then third, we compromise our values and identity. We compromise our identity, who we, really, who, who we really are as a child of the king, what we should really be about as a child of the king. But the pressure of, of circumstances presses down on us and we start reasoning that maybe it's just not a big deal to do what we think is best. And we let something or someone other than God shape our identity. God chose Saul to be the king. He was anointed by Samuel. It was clear to him that he would be the one to deliver Israel from the Philistines. And they had victory over their enemies all around. But Saul loses that vision of his God-given identity. He turns the authority structure upside down. I mean, God's still in there, of course, but he's at the bottom. Saul is big, God is small. And Saul's like, maybe there's a way I can have God's favor and God's help but still do what's best for me. Do you ever find yourself ignoring what God has said but asking him for his help? Are you doing that now? In some area of your life, have you reasoned your way into compromising what you know that God says is right in order to get what you want, but at the same time, you're asking God for his help? If so, Saul is your new BFF. And here we see the first clearly visible sign that 
this one degree off course moment in Saul's life, this, this is the visible beginning of his demise as Israel's king. What seemed like just one degree off in chapter 13 will take Saul miles away from what God had wanted for Saul. It's very, very sad. But it's even sadder because what happens is in this anatomy of sin is we, cut, we feel the pressure, we start faulty reasoning, we compromise our values and our identity, and then we make excuses and shift the blame. Like in chapter 13, uh, verse 11, Samuel says, what have you done? And Saul says, well, when I saw that the people were scattering from me and, that, and the, uh, that you didn't come within the days appointed and the Philistines had assembled at Michmash, I said, now the Philistines are gonna come down against me at Gilgal and I haven't sought the favor uh, of the Lord. See it, he's ignoring God, but he's seeking his favor. He, and, but, but, but what's happened here is Saul's caught. He was overcome by the pressures of his circumstances. He reasons his way into compromise, and then he makes excuses and blames it all on Samuel. I forced myself. I, I felt compelled. By what? By what? By, 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 you felt compelled by what? To disobey God? You felt compelled to disobey Yahweh because of what? Well, I, I felt compelled to disobey because my, my circumstances seem so hopeless. Now, it's true for sure that difficult, unwanted circumstances can bring pressure into our lives and we feel helpless in those, in those times. But is helpless the same thing as hopeless? Well, no, not if God's in charge. In fact, it's when we cry out for help in our helplessness that God shows up. Helpless is not hopeless. Not if God is your king. But for Saul, he's like, well, yeah, I know that Yahweh created the world, and yeah, he miraculously delivered Israel from slavery in Egypt, and yes, he delivered Israel time and again with the help of people like Othniel and Deborah and Samson and all these others. But he convinces himself. But this is different. It's much worse. Not true but this is how he's reasoning. This is much worse, so I had to take matters into my own hands and do what seemed best to me. Verse 12, and I offered the burnt offering, and Samuel said, you've done foolishly. You've, you have not kept the command of the Lord your God with which he commanded you. So rather than admit his sin, rather than to take responsibility for his actions, Saul reasons his way into compromising God's clear instructions, and when he's caught... He makes excuses, he blames Samuel, and he reasons his way into believing that his plan was the only plan that made sense. That's the anatomy of sin. Pressure, faulty reasoning, compromise, excuse making and blame shifting, and it's a pattern that will be repeated. What he should have said to Samuel is, you're right. I messed up, I was wrong, I was wrong. And then kept his mouth shut and took whatever consequences like a godly leader should. But I don't think the consequences would have been the same. Because look, God doesn't expect us to be perfect. But as we are being formed by the Spirit, he expects us to respond in ways that are honoring to him. Especially when we get caught. And when we get caught, we don't, we don't make excuses. We don't 
shift the blame to others. We don't try to negotiate. But Saul doesn't learn this lesson. And really what we see here, again, it's nothing compared to what we're gonna see when we get to chapter 15 and then on to the tragic end of Saul's story. Saul never really learns to own his sin, never owns his failures, and it will literally drive him insane by the end of his life. So what do we learn about spiritual formation from this chapter of the life of Saul? Well, I think we can learn something about language. I think we can learn something about language. Because when the pressures come down on us and when we're squeezed by the world to be in a shape different from what God created us to be, I think there's something about language that comes into play. We have in that moment a, a choice of the language that we will speak. We can either speak the language of pride or we can speak the language of humility. When Saul was under pressure, he chose the language of pride. Verse 11, I, 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 you, you, you didn't do so I. That's the language of pride. It's about me, it's about me defending myself, it's about me defending my decision, it's about me defending what I had to do. I was forced to do it because of what you did or didn't do. How many arguments have you found yourself in? And really, probably both of you were at fault in some way, but you absolutely refuse to own your own sin. You absolutely refuse to own your own sin. Insisting is, it's what you did that forced me to do this. I mean, well, I wouldn't have said that ugly thing to you if you hadn't have said that ugly thing to me. It's what I had to do since you weren't doing what you said you were do. That's Saul, right? Hey, look, Samuel, I'm not wrong here. I'm not wrong. You were late, so this is all your fault. That's the language of pride. Because you see, when we're big, then sin is like, uh, it's just a little thing, you know? Just a little thing. When we're big, a sin like this is no big deal. Come on, God, give me a break. I had to disobey you. I didn't have any other choice but to disobey. That's the language of pride. But when the pressure's on and we cave under the pressure, there's a second option, and that is we can respond with the language of humility. Humility admits wrong. Humility doesn't make excuses. Humility looks at my own sin and not the sins of others. Humility doesn't negotiate who was more right and who was more wrong. Humility doesn't look at the sins of others and respond in harsh, unkind, unloving ways. A humble person accepts the consequences caused by wrongs done in pride and rests in God's promise of forgiveness and grace. In the passage Jason taught on last week, Samuel's uh, farewell speech from chapter 12, when Samuel rebukes the people for demanding a king like all the other nations, when he confronts them with their sin and God confirms the words of Samuel by sending a, an unexpected terrifying thunderstorm, the people repent and they humble themselves before the Lord and Samuel. Here's what they say, chapter 12, verse 19. And all the people said to Samuel, pray for your servants to the Lord your God that we may not die for we have added to all our sins this evil by asking for a king. See, that's an admission of guilt. That's taking responsibility for their sin. 
That's repentance. Verse 20, and Samuel said to the people, don't be afraid. If you sin and you mess up, don't be afraid. He says, you have done this evil, yet don't turn aside from following the Lord, but serve the Lord with all your heart and don't turn aside after empty things that cannot profit or deliver for they're empty. What's, what does he mean by empty? Empty things are things that we reason will give us more life and more enjoyment than we can find in God. Empty things are things we embrace that rob us of our true identity of sons and daughters of the king and bend us out of shape. Now listen to verse 22. For the Lord will not forsake his people for his great namesake because it has pleased the Lord to make you a people for himself. That's identity, a God-given identity. He doesn't reject you when you sin and mess up. You come to him with a language of humility and repentance and confession and he said, and only fear the Lord your God and serve him faithfully and consider what the great things he has done for you. Consider the great things he has done for you. That is grace. You're not cast aside. You're not cast out. And we're going to see later on that that was true in King David's life. He owned his sin. Saul never owns his sin. When we blow it, when we mess up, when we do what's right in our own eyes rather than God's eyes, what does God want to hear? He wants to hear the language of humility. And when he hears humble repentance, we experience his pouring out of his grace and forgiveness in full in present tense. Not something just happened way back when we became a Christian. We experience his grace and forgiveness present tense. Again, a couple of weeks back, I talked about the duties of the king in Deuteronomy 17, which I read part of it again a moment ago. You remember what the posture of the king was? The posture of the king is humbly kneeling before God, humbly kneeling with, with a heart that is com in complete submission to the word of God. The king was to be subject to God the king. And so what Saul could have done was to get on his knees and, and get off by himself and he's like, God, what do you want me to do? God, I'm struggling to obey here. The pressure, the temptation seems so overwhelming. The way before me is not clear. Show me the way that I, I, I should go. Give me the strength to say no to all the voices in my head and everybody, all the men that are saying this and that. And God, anchor me in your word. See, that, that's, that's the posture of a Christian. That's the posture of a Christ follower. John Wesley said, indeed, there is no little sin because there is no little God to sin against. There's no little sin because there's no little God to sin against. So how, so how do we become like this? How, how can we be, be formed like this? Well, I think it depends on what we value. What we value most. Our values determine who we listen to and what we watch and how we live and only biblically informed values can save us from giving our lives to empty things. But it's more than just obeying commands and rules for a Christian. We live on, 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 living on this side of the cross. It's more personal to us than that because Jesus makes all this personal to us. For consider what great things God has done for us in Christ which raises questions like, do we value Jesus above 
all else? Do we value what Jesus did for us above everything else? Do we value how Jesus says life is to be lived in this broken world more than the things that the world offers us? Do we value Jesus enough to listen intently to his words above anyone else's words, including the words we tell ourselves in our own minds. There's a story that's told about a, a, a farmer who visited in Chicago and he was walking down the streets of Chicago. He had a friend there that he knew, this Chicago one, and they're walking down the streets together and it's a busy, noisy street. Cars are honking, people, you know, scream at each other like, like, like they, they do up north. and. Uh, and uh, all, all kinds of that. It's really noisy, you know. And, and, and he's, he's Chicago and he's walking with his friend and his friend stops and says, I hear a cricket. And the guy from Chicago looks at him and says, what? This is downtown Chicago. Listen to all the street noises coming here. Like you couldn't possibly hear a cricket and all this noise. So the farmer goes over to this big concrete planter. There's a big tree in the planter and there's all kinds of leaves that... Uh, around the top of the planter in the soil and the farmer just starts picking around in the soil and he, he, he pulls out a cricket. And the Chicago one is like, whoa, that's unbelievable. You, 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 ha you gotta have the greatest ears in the world. And the farmer said, no, my ears are just like your ears. But I'm from the country and I love the country and I love the sound of crickets at night. They remind me of the home I grew up in. My ears are the same as yours, he said. And the farmer reaches into his pocket and pulls out a handful of change and he throws it on the, on the ground and those coins clatter on the concrete and a bunch of heads go, look right over there. What we value determines what we hear. What we value determines what we do and how we think. Saul valued the thoughts of his own mind over God's word, and the pressures of the world twisted him and he became a king that God couldn't use. So how do we resist the pressures that come with difficult circumstances? Only by valuing what God says above what we say to ourselves. Only by valuing what God says above ourselves. Or let me put it this way. This is my big idea. The pressures of our circumstances can bend us out of the shape God has designed us to be unless we value God's word above the self-justifying words we tell ourselves. Words that make disobeying God seem reasonable. The pressures of our circumstances can bend us out of the shape that God has designed us to be unless we value God's word above the self-justifying words we tell ourselves, words that make disobeying God seem reasonable. Final question. What are you telling yourself that makes ignoring what God says reasonable. What are you telling yourself that makes what God says seem reasonable? The Jesus on Display podcast is produced right here at Fellowship Greenville in Greenville, South Carolina. 
Thanks for listening to today's episode. Follow and share this podcast with anyone who might be interested or curious about our church community or how storytelling unites us and helps us feel more connected. To actively keep up with what's going on at our church community, head to our website at fellowshipgreenville.org. Follow us on all social media platforms and subscribe to our YouTube channel. Thanks for tuning in. Grace and peace to you for your week, and we'll see you next time.